Welcome to the first ever episode of Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk. And I'm Annie Kriegbaum. Today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Darian Sutton, who is an emergency room doctor in New York City, but is moving to Los Angeles, I think, as we speak. And he's going to tell us about the hand sanitizer debate, whether washing your hands is better or is hand sanitizer better? And also is hand sanitizer going to create a super bug that is going to kill us all? I don't really know what to think about hand sanitizer, but Dr. Darian is going to school me. And we're also speaking to Lisa Goodman, the founder of Good Skin Clinics in Los Angeles and New York about ways to get what Annie is, what are you calling it? I didn't, I'm not calling it this. The internet is calling it the fox eye, which is apparently the new cat eye. The fox eye is the new cat eye. Right. And that's like when you're sort of like pulling up the sides of your eyes to look, to look like Bella Hadid. Sometimes. Well, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get it. into it. But first, let's get into this week's top stories. So last week on our preview episode, we spoke to Sharon Shooter from who started the pull up for change movement on Instagram, which was she was calling on all these beauty brands that showed support for the Black Lives Matter movement to actually go a step further and release the numbers of black employees that they have in executive leadership positions at their company. Um, Cause her whole point was, look, don't just take part in the social media aspect of this. Let's see uh, who's actually behind the scenes at your company, because that's how real change is created. And, the numbers were not good. Check out that episode to see who were some of the first brands to take part in this. A lot of huge, huge, huge corporations have taken part. Um, since last week, we've seen Neutrogena release their numbers. Even outside of beauty, Khloe Kardashian's Good American released their numbers. Tom Shoes. Levi's also released their numbers. 5% in corporate and less than 2% in leadership. And none at the level of a uh, board. <laughs> the, what is it called? The... Executive board. Yeah, but you can the be board of directors. Okay. The board of directors. Sure. Um, I think what one thing that I think is really interesting about what Sharon is doing on Pull Up for Change is that she's really kind of making brands drill into their numbers. So not just saying, oh, we have 15% black employees because most of the people who work in the retail stores are black. Or, or POC, right? That's the that's the other thing. That's the other umbrella term. What she's doing is she's saying, no, I want to know how many people that are black work in corporate, because I think when you look at, you know, for example, a brand like Nike, they have a lot of black representation at the store level, but maybe not as much in the corporate level and also zero on the executive team. Which goes back to something she said last week, which was the black culture is the only culture where they're not commercially controlling it. Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of, you know, followers of the Pull Up for Change movement, a lot of these like beauty consumers have been calling on Fenty in particular to release their numbers. I think at first, a lot of people were shouting them out as like, hey, this is a black owned beauty brand that we can support right now. And then, you know, I think once people started actually like researching it a little bit more, they came to find out that it's actually owned by Kendo brands. It's a little confusing, but Kendo is actually owned by LVMH, which also owns Sephora which is where you'll find these Kindo brands to buy. Speaking of Sephora, they were actually the first corporation to sign up for the 15% pledge, which was a 
basically a movement created by a creative director and fashion designer in Brooklyn named Aurora James. And she, you know, on Instagram started an account saying that brands should dedicate 15% of their shelf space to black owned businesses because black people constitute 15% of the population. And so she wanted sort of like accurate representation at the retail level. And Sephora was the first major corporation to step up and say they're going to dedicate 15% of their shelf space to Black-owned brands. And what's interesting is in doing so, they also revealed what their current statistics are, which I guess you could do yourself if you had some time to do the math. But only seven out of the 290 brands at Sephora are owned by Black people. It's Seven out of 290 is not a good statistic, and they have a lot... Um, they have a lot of work to do, but I commend them at being the only brand that's actually stepping up to the plate. Like they keep on asking Target to do it. Yeah, Target hasn't. Ulta, Walmart, Kroger, Shopbop, Whole Foods. And no one's doing it yet. Well, if, you know, if this is anything like the pull up for change, I think now that Sephora has done it, other brands will like be pressured to follow suit. The important thing to think about here is that dedicating 15% of your shelf space in a Sephora where shelf space is king is a huge deal. And it means that a lot of black owned businesses that maybe don't have like the wholesale business to support the backbone of the business, like now we'll have a, a revenue stream that can actually support a lot more of their product development, all that sort of stuff. Because Sephora has a ton of stores. And hopefully a lot of resources that they can also help these brands in other ways. So that's great. And so congratulations to Aurora for getting that off the ground. I'm also just impressed, you know, with Sharon and now with Aurora, like these individuals being able to bring large corporations to the table seems like we're at kind of a watershed moment in history where like someone can create a movement on social media and like change the practices of, you know, a global corporation. Which well, and they're, they're mobilizing their audiences, right? So sometimes it feels like as a consumer, you're just kind of following these brands and you're just buying, but it's kind of cool that now you can participate in a uh, much more meaningful way. Totally. So next story on this the flip one, side. On the flip side of those not actively doing good is the CEO <laughs> of a skincare brand that I've never heard of who made headlines last week. Her name is Lisa Alexander. She's the founder and CEO of something called LaFace Skincare, and she pulled the ultimate Karen move. She called the cops on a Filipino man who was stenciling the words Black Lives Matter on the stone fence in front of his home in San Francisco. She was like indignant and and saying that he didn't live there and that she knew who did live there, and he was like, who then? And, um, and I guess and, he had lived there for years, too. So. Yes. She did later apologize, but not before deleting her company's website, any sort of social media. I just found a phone number on the Better Business Bureau website, but I tried to call it and the mailbox is full. I wonder why. She did apologize to the man and said, quote, I should have minded my own business. I think that's another good operating principle for a lot of white people right now. Birchbox, uh, which I guess did something with LaFace, condemned uh, Alexander's racist actions and said that they're never going to hold her brand again. So goodbye, well, LaFace. I think last week was the first and last time we will ever hear about LaFace. The last piece of news we have this week is that, you know, as states are relaxing restrictions on COVID and social distancing and the shelter at home 
you know, policies that have kept us all indoors for the last three months. Not only are we seeing spikes in COVID cases in states like Florida and Alabama and where else, Annie? California, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas. But as part of as part of the reopening of these states, states are reopening their hair salons and nail salons, and salon owners are going to have to find a new way to approach their jobs. I mean, a lot of salons are only going to be able to operate at fifty percent capacity, or they're going to have to, you know, alternate chairs so that not every chair is filled. Which, which if you think about how the salon business works, people rent a chair, so if you have an empty chair, it's just it's missed income. I mean, I spoke to the woman who's been cutting my hair for 15 years in Dallas. And uh, I think two weeks ago is when they started back up. And yeah, she was saying that every other day they're coming in as stylists so that they're all kind of getting work still. But the salon is only at 50% capacity inside. I saw he's like a male groomer. I, I think he like applies body oils to male models and does their like tousled hair. His name's Ben Thigpen and he was wearing a gas mask doing haircuts. So we're going to see lots of new normals and and that uh, I think having a haircutter who is wearing a gas mask and a, some kind of a sterile gown is probably on the, on the table. And a lot of beauty professionals are getting special barbicide training for COVID with a certificate. I've seen like um, a lot of professional like editorial makeup artists and hairstylists posting that on their Instagram to show like their clients and their communities that they're well-trained to handle this once everybody's ready to go back to work. I mean, we all want to go back to normal. We all want to get our haircut. We're all, and by we all, I mean, I need a haircut. I shaved my head at the beginning of quarantine and now it's all but completely grown out. And I just think what we need to remember, which is actually something that Dr. Darian Sutton, who I just spoke to about this topic among others said, which is that you have to remain vigilant, like COVID's not over and you have to be able to decide, you know, where you're willing to take risks and where you're not. And if going to a salon is something that you're willing to do, you need to take the necessary precautions like wearing a mask, social distancing, bringing hand sanitizer, which um, as we will hear shortly is just an interim solution. The actual best thing to do is guess what, Annie? I can't do it. What is it? Wash your hands. Well, I mean, let's get right into that story then. I want to talk about hands. And more specifically, I want to talk about hand sanitizer. I've been on the hunt for the last five months, however long we've been in quarantine, for like a good smelling, powerful hand sanitizer because I've figured that that's the only way I'm going to kill the COVID virus on my hands from being outside or touching a doorknob or touching a shopping cart. Do you have hand sanitizer? Yeah, I have a few different kinds. I have this like spray rectangle that looks like an Apple product that's from Touchland. They're, that's the brand where all the hand sanitizers were sold out, right? Yeah, but I think they they were restocked pretty quickly. It's like now everybody makes hand sanitizer suddenly. And it's hard to sort of figure out whether it's opportunism or it's for the public good, but every brand does seem to be coming out with hand sanitizer. I don't like it. I think it's like wasteful packaging. They're all doing pumps. They're doing spray nozzles. You can't recycle those. I just think it's bad. Anyway, hand sanitizer is something I've been thinking a lot about because I'm a little confused. Before COVID, there was this feeling that hand sanitizers might be doing 
more harm than good because they were killing good bacteria and bad bacteria and they were going to create a super bug and they had some ingredient in it that was carcinogenic and I have whipped myself into a frenzy thinking that it's bad for you. Now all of a sudden we're supposed to be using hand sanitizer. I don't know what to believe. There was a point at which we weren't supposed to be wearing masks and now we're only supposed to be wearing masks. So I wanted to talk to an expert, a doctor, and I called Dr. Darian Sutton, who is an ER doctor in New York City and a friend of mine. And he shed some light on the matter. We're talking about hand sanitizer and wanted to, you know, as a, as a physician, get your take on a, you know, can we trust hand sanitizers and in the sort of like hierarchy of safety measures, where, where do hand sanitizers land? So I feel like during this pandemic, it's really important to talk about what we're fighting, right? So we're fighting a virus. And the reason why I always step back and try to frame it is because we have to understand what we're looking at and identify the variables in the equation, and then we can solve it. So we are fighting a virus. Specifically, we're talking about COVID-19, which is a coronavirus that belongs to a family of coronaviruses. Like many viruses, it has an envelope around it that protects it from other things in the environment that could harm it to allow it to continue to prosper. One of those things is called a lipid bilayer. And so in order to fight this virus, there are certain things that we have in order to break down that bilayer and ruin the virus and not allow it to prosper. One of the main things that there there is that exists is soap and water. And the reason why soap and water are so important and so valuable is A, they're a lot more accessible, and B, it's probably the best line of defense against prevention of a virus. And C, soap actually breaks down that lipid bilayer, which does not allow the virus to prosper. Um, When you don't have soap and water available, then we use products such as uh, hand sanitizers, which have been really, really popular. But sometimes I kind of uh, shudder to the idea of using them only. And the reason why is because I know for many instances in the hospital, there are times when I know that there are it's a hand sanitizing time versus when I know that it's a soap and water time. And I'm not sure if that is clear to everyone. What defines the different scenarios? Yeah, great question. So when I'm seeing a patient um, pre-pandemic or basically any time, there's many questions that I ask myself for the level of contamination that I'm getting into. I think what people have to understand is it seems very simple and I don't mean to... Um, demean anyone in terms of understanding how sanitization works. But if your hands are visibly soiled or dirty, that is not a space for hand sanitizer. That is not a way that hand sanitizer is going to come in and and help you. That is when you need soap and water to get rid of the grime and then break down any possible pathogens that could cause you to be ill. Hand sanitizer is really for those times when you touch something and you don't see physically anything on your hand, but you have that idea that you've touched something foreign that may be contaminating And that's when you use hand sanitizer. And so that's what I meant by saying, like, there are times when you do use hand sanitizer and there are times when you don't. And to bring an example into this, if I'm out all day riding a bike, I go to the supermarket, I grab my bags, I get into my house, I do the things that I do to to transfer myself from outside to in my house. That is a time for soap and water. That is never a time for hand sanitizer. Do you think that hand sanitizer, I mean, I I see in in L.A. a lot and I assume in New York a lot of people grocery shopping with uh, rubber gloves on. Yeah. What's your take on rubber gloves? 
Great, great question. I'm glad you brought it up because it's one of those things that for me is um, uh, kind of a pet peeve. So when you're wearing gloves, it's for a momentary experience. That means when you are about to touch something, uh, again, foreign or possibly contaminating, and you're going to put on the gloves, touch that, and then properly dispose of the gloves. So to allow people to understand, I use gloves often every single day that I go to work. Um, I use multiple sets of gloves throughout the day. Um, so when I'm going to touch something, I put on, I wash my hands, I then put on the gloves. Then before I even uh, stop and take the gloves off, I usually use hand sanitizer to uh, use on the gloves themselves to decrease the risk of contaminating myself. And then I wash my hands again. Um, the problem is, is that I've seen people outside in the supermarkets doing their daily activities with their gloves continuously on. And so they're not using it for a momentary experience. And I think in many ways, gloves give you a false sense of security. Like you'll, uh, people will often not remember that they're still wearing them. They'll touch their phone. They'll touch their jacket. They'll put their hands in their pocket. These are contaminating every single surface. And I've seen even people reach into a bag of potato chips. Obviously, that's the, most of us won't do that because we realize that. But again, I think it gives you the mental false security that you're protecting yourself as opposed to when you're not wearing gloves and you know when you touch something foreign because you have this sensation and you remind yourself immediately, I need to wash my hands. My husband, who's a nurse practitioner, is always like, it's actually more dangerous to wear gloves at this point than not because it gives you that false sense of security. And this is sort of a pre-pandemic question, but you know, pre-pandemic in the beauty industry, there was this, uh, not even in the beauty industry, in, in media, there was this sense that, you know, Using overusing hand sanitizers could, could create super bugs or could, you know, potentially have carcinogenic uh, ingredients like derived from ethanol. And now, obviously, we're in a pandemic where hand sanitizer is one, you know, of, of several tools we have in our toolkit to stop the, you know, spread of the disease of the virus, rather. What's the cost benefit analysis that you you make with, you know, overusing hand sanitizer versus you know, not. If you're going to use a hand sanitizer, number one, check the ingredients is always really important because you brought up some really great points. There are core ingredients in hand sanitizers, which provide us the reasoning for why we use them because they break down the virus. But some of the ingredients are not always shown to be effective. And sometimes they're really not helpful. And again, there is possibility of them causing harm. So there is ethyl alcohol, which is in a primary alcohol. And then a byproduct or a derivative of that is something called isopropyl alcohol, which is the ingredient in most uh, hand sanitizers. And as it is advised that your hand sanitizer should be at least 60% of this to increase the chances of you killing off most of the virus. That being said, a lot of these ingredients are still currently being studied by the FDA. So in all honesty, we truly don't know about long-term effects of continuous use of hand sanitizers, even though I myself use them every single day. We haven't seen any short-term effects, but they're still under that guidance and that awareness. And I think many times the FDA keeps prolonging these studies because the benefit far outweighs any risk that can be seen. Other ingredients include benzoalkonium uh, chloride, I think it's called, yeah, and trichome. These are things that you should just pay attention because, again, these are currently being studied. I bring up trichome or, or other ingredients other than isopropyl alcohol because, again, some of them have actually been shown to be deleterious in animal studies, although we have not seen that correlation in human studies, and they're not fully FDA approved. So if I'm a consumer who wants to you know, get something other than Purell, whether I want to support like a brand that I love, or I want something that is, you know, seemingly more, quote unquote, natural, where would you head and what what needs to be on the ingredient label? 
So I just want to correct myself. It's uh, triclosan is the ingredient that's sometimes on hand sanitizers when they say this is a non-alcohol-based hand sanitizer. And that ingredient is something that's that's still studied. It's used as a instead of isopropyl alcohol, you're saying? Yeah, they use triclosan as an ingredient instead of uh, alcoholic substances um, in hand sanitizers. And that has been shown to be possibly harmful. So I advise people to pay attention um, that if you want to use things outside of uh, the everyday isopropyl alcohol, that you pay attention to the studies that revolve around that ingredient. Back to your question. The main ingredient, all you honestly really need is isopropyl alcohol. Now, everything added to that is really dependent on that brand. Um, I actually have a really good friend who's a scientist, and she she works in a chemistry lab, and she makes her own hand sanitizer with isopropyl alcohol and other ingredients like lavender and aloe um, that she finds to be helpful, and she sends them to me. And I find that to be one of the, the best hand sanitizers I have because it leaves my skin still soft, and it still has the ingredients that I need. So if I'm advising anyone who's trying to look for other products, honestly, the only ingredient that you really need to have in it is some type of isopropyl alcohol. And then the other ingredients added to that, that can be variable and that can be up to you. Did you read about the recent class action lawsuit against Purell? I have not. I'll just like briefly summarize it for you. So basically, Purell is this company called Gojo, and they're facing two class action lawsuits accusing Purell of misleading claims that it can prevent 99% of illness causing germs. The label states that it can quote kill 99% of illness causing germs, but the suit claims that it's misleading because it implies that sound scientific support uh, exists where there actually is none. Um, Is that like, you know, and maybe this is more of a question for, you know, a scientist or your scientist friend, but is this just another reason why hand washing really should be the first defense? Yeah. So when you look at the reports and even when you see 99.9%, those numbers can actually be quite uh, misleading. And the reason why is because as as a person who myself has studied microbiology, that 0.01%, that, that brings into a lot of question. And how much do you need to actually become virulent and contagious? And within that question, that is variable dependent on what virus you're talking about or what pathogen or bacteria you're talking about. So I think baseline, that number is is relatively misleading. Again, it's still better than nothing. But personally, my choice of sanitization is soap and water because I know that that is proven to be effective and efficient. Um, so, yeah, I can understand why that would be brought into litigation. What are your favorite soaps and what are your favorite hand sanitizers? <laughs> my favorite soaps and hand sanitizers. So my favorite hand sanitizer is the one that's homemade right, that I just discussed with my uh, friend Lydia who sends them to me. Uh, honestly, my favorite soap, oh gosh, uh, you would have to ask my fiance Philip probably because he's the one that supplies me soap. But I, I mean, I love the scent of a soap. I think that, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. You're speaking to someone who is not in beauty. Um, a soap scents like, just make me think that I am I'm sitting inside of a spa and relaxing. The soap that I always have in my bag or my gym bag is a, a, a bar of Dove soap. I have, it's kind of nostalgic from my childhood because it was a soap that my mom always used. And it's a soap with a case that I always have with me. I don't know why, but it's always inside of every gym bag that I have. That's like a bar of Dove soap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And remember at the beginning, you know, it seems like forever ago, but it wasn't uh, at the beginning of the sort of height of the pandemic. You know, my hands were getting incredibly cracked and dry. I assume yours are yes, incredibly beat up by the amount of washing and sanitizing you're doing. What I mean, is it just about applying like a moisture a barrier protectant? Like what can people do? 
contact dermatitis is is so pervasive now um, in everyone as well as healthcare providers because we're so aggressively washing our hands from the general anxiety of fear of contracting this novel virus. So I always have uh, moisturizers with me because my skin is dry baseline. My hand skin is dry baseline. So I've always practiced this. I would advise people to realize that washing your hands is just a drying procedure. It's going to dry out your skin. So whatever you think is helpful is best. Skin food is one of my favorite things that I bring with me everywhere. I do not know who makes this. Right? Like the one in the green tube? Yes, yes. I love that product because I, um, it, first of all, it keeps my hands moist um, and it keeps my hands soft and it's always in my white coat. <laughs> I love that. And then as states and cities are slowly opening up, any sort of general suggestions uh, from a public health perspective that that you have that you give your patients or that you are sort of like practicing yourself as as we're going to restaurants again, as we're going to get hair done or our nails done? Yeah. So I think it's really important to have a geographic sense of what your surroundings are like. So I'm speaking as a physician working in New York City, which is one of the most densely populated cities in the United States and obviously has suffered the most in terms of the death counts from this coronavirus. So I think it's really important as we progress into what I call this next phase of our new normal, that we all take a moment and realize what is around us and and the environments and the actions that we can take to better prevent a resurgence of this coronavirus. So what I try to tell my friends who don't live in New York, who just have general questions, is think about the actions that you do on a daily basis and think about how many times you come into close contact with others. When you're deciding whether or not you want to use a restaurant or go to a supermarket, ask yourself, can I responsibly walk through this premise without coming into six feet contact with another person? Or how best can I make the actions that I'm going to do today to avoid uh, transferring the possible coronavirus to someone who may be vulnerable? Um, I think it's really, really important that we do these things in an act of solidarity, including things like washing our hands and wearing masks, because we have to realize that our actions have direct consequences on others who may be vulnerable. And so now that we are progressing into this next phase, I just really, really, really advise people to just take a moment and think about your actions every day and figure out how best you can help combat this virus. And I feel like that's that's dependent on the person and where they are. Is there any responsible way to get your hair cut or colored? Yeah, absolutely. Number one, being upfront and transparent about your current exposure. So I think that now we're stepping into this world where we're starting to be more honest with our exposure status. And it's sad, but, you know, things like, first of all, as an employer of employees, uh, being out sick is something that needs to be respected a lot more, you know? And so we need to make sure that we provide opportunities for employees who are ill to be able to stay home and quarantine themselves. And then secondly, for those who are coming into close contact with people every single day, as I can attest, and I know that that's my livelihood as well, we have to figure out what provisions we can put in place to decrease contamination. So that involves washing our hands more regularly, setting up reminders, and advising people and others that, hey, I'm going to be wearing a mask during this. I'm sorry, it may not feel as a close personal contact as it normally is, you know, with your hairdresser, as you normally probably converse and talk about your personal details of your life. But I'm doing this to protect you and protect others. So I feel like those are provisions that we can take because I don't want to stop people from doing the things that make them feel good. And I don't think it should be stopped. But I do think that we should always take a moment and be cognizant of what we're doing. That's pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about the fox eye. It's this trend that I've been seeing on Instagram, Reddit, makeup addiction. TikTok. 
Well, I personally haven't seen it on TikTok, but apparently it's that's where it kind of took off and went viral because one of the ways people are achieving this look, which is this very like elongated, snatched from the temple uh, eye shape is by actually shaving off half of their eyebrow to get a more like angular upward line there. But there's other ways to get it too, whether through just like your eyeliner shape or through your posing technique, uh, which is very Bella Hadid. Basically, when you're like, you put your hand up and you stretch out your eye. Yeah, but they're doing, a lot of girls are doing like a very, you know, they're gingerly touching each temple and pulling them both back and giving themselves like a little temporary facelift. I've seen people do it with face tape and there's also a, uh, sounds quite invasive, but I guess it's not technically an invasive cosmetic procedure called threads. And that's another way people are getting this very like snatched upward turn to the eye. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that some people on, even on TikTok, you have a creator who is like pointing out that like, this could be seen as quote unquote yellow face where you're kind of recreating this more like Asian eye feature. So some people say snatched and some people say it's like racist. Yeah. Or just also like tone deaf, maybe at best tone deaf at most racist. Look, I, I think women have been getting like facelifts for years to achieve like a similar look, but I totally get like people's point. I mean, the same thing is said about like lip injections. So I understand the criticism for those who are unfamiliar, threads came from South Korea. It's a it's a process in which these hyaluronic acid threads have which have little barbs on them are threaded under your skin and then the barbs attach to your skin and then you yank them up and tie them off in your scalp and it gives you a temporary lift. The photos I'm seeing on the really like bizarre plastic surgery Instagrams it kind of looks like somebody threaded a needle through a couch cushion and like fastened a button on the end and then like yanked it back through and got that tufted look. It's not for the for the meek. Can I ask you, you mentioned these hyaluronic acid threads. How do you make a solid substance out of hyaluronic acid? Well, all fillers, I know this just because my husband does this for a living, but all filler is made out of hyaluronic acid and there's different thicknesses I guess, molecular structures of, or I mean, I have no fucking clue what it actually is, but all I know is that there's different thicknesses of hyaluronic acid that are used for different, to fill different parts of the face. So I guess the threads are made of a dissolvable material. I think it's hyaluronic acid, but they are strong enough that you can gank them. So why don't we stop supposing and ask the expert who is Lisa Goodman, she founded Good Skin Clinics Dermatology Clinic, which has offices in both Los Angeles and New York. And their approach to dermatology is more of like what they're calling like this untouched look, which is very European, very New York, she says. And the point is to not look like you've had anything done. So here's our conversation with Lisa. Okay, so Lisa, I've been seeing threads pop up a ton on my Explore page on Instagram. They're actually overtaking lip filler. Why are they suddenly so popular? Where do they come from? We've been using threads now for the last four years. So in terms of popularity, I'm not sure why they're having a moment now. 
they're, they come from Korea, actually. Russians and Koreans have been using them the longest. And we prefer a Korean brand called Mint. And what exactly are threads? Threads are a dissolvable suture that you can use in different areas of the face or body to create lift. However, the ability for it to do that varies widely based on technique and based on the thread itself. So what is the good skin technique? Oh, the good skin technique is that we feel very, we think threads are both great and both not great. (laughs) We do them, but we don't oversell them and we don't overdo them. And we don't think that they can take the place of Botox fillers or sometimes surgery. So I think the one place that threads go wrong is it's very, very easy to look at a before and after on Instagram with a thread that's done immediately, but that result will not be there in a couple days, nine out of 10 times. So I think threads can be very misleading. Because they, they like sort of settle? Because generally most of the threads that you're seeing, nine out of 10 threads that you're seeing on Instagram are placed in the skin and skin is elastic. And so the skin after a few days will then go back to its former position. We believe in doing threads that are hooked into the fascia fascia being a non-mobile tissue that won't stretch or give. And we think that that can give a longer lasting result, but we still tell clients even then it's still like four to nine months at most. Who would be a good candidate for threads? We do threads a lot on clients who are having an event or they don't, they want very little downtime and they don't have time to wait for lasers to work and they're looking for a mini lift in either their neck or their cheek or their brow. So I actually have a theory of why they're so popular right now. I, I think I've actually seen this in some of the descriptions on these Instagram posts. So there's this new kind of makeup look that has suddenly become very popular called the fox eye. And it's this very like elongated kind of cat eye. And it's like, you know, when people say you look snatched, a lot of girls like, brush their hair back really tight into a high ponytail, like that very like Bella Hadid look. That's like taking over. And I feel like I see threads a lot of time in unison with this fox eye description. Um, We had some clients DM us and we actually said no to doing it for them. I I did do it on three people yesterday. So it is a common thing that we do. However, again, I think that it's not for everyone because it, on some people, that look can look very done or even really contrived, I guess, and not fit their features. Also, too, it it doesn't pull as much as people think it does, and it doesn't last as long as Instagram would let you, lead you to believe it does. So it's a treatment we do, but again, we do it on some people and mostly for people that really do have lateral eyelid sagging. So when you see on the Instagram where you have a younger girl and it's really pulled up, that's a matter, that's not just threads doing that. And it's also a little bit of like falsifying of results because it's easy for me to put a thread in, take a photo and show on Instagram that it's really lifted. But again, it's not this extreme thing that people say it is. So since you're not recommending them, as a solution for a lift, like what do you recommend for, as an alternative? 
So you have to diagnose the problem. So if someone has an eyelid pulling down from muscle, then you have to use Botox first with maybe filler to create more bony support with threads. So that was what we did on the client yesterday is we combined eyebrow threads with filler with Botox at the lateral brow so that she could have the best lift that will actually stay. And is this for someone that is like drooping and, you know, she's looking to look younger or would you? We tend to treat more for the sake of science and preventative aging and less for beauty. And so we have done younger girls that want a higher lateral edge of their brow. But again, they, they clinically had a lower brow to begin with that warranted it. Like we're not trying to give everyone the same cat eye pulled eye look because it's not appropriate on everyone. It's only in America that we really have, oh, maybe Russia. But it's this idea of going into medi-spa clinics to like have a snatched look or have a look of a celebrity is really quite American. And so I think you're seeing a lot of people follow trends. So when you see people like Bella Hadid doing it, we think that that's a matter of surgery and also constant threads and also makeup and also angles. Right. What's the pain level for something like threads? It depends. In the brows, it's like a zero to a one. And then if you're doing thicker threads that are hooked in more into fascia for the lower face, you're still like a three. So if you want to look snatched, you would start with Botox. My recommendation is not to look snatched unless it's actually going to look good on you. (laughs) (laughs) Snatched is not for everybody. I mean, look at what people look like that continue to follow the Instagram trends. First it's lips, then it was cheeks. Now you have the snatched. It's like, you're going to look like a cat. Yeah. Right. Most people end up looking like a cat or they end up looking the same. Again, I'm contradicting myself because I'm like, we still do threads, but it has to fit like the face as a whole and not be done in a matter of following a trend. So maybe looking snatched might be good for you, but maybe it won't be. And for example, we had a really big deal A-list actress in the other day and she actually flat out said, she's like, I'm actually avoiding looking like I've had things done and I absolutely do not want the edges of my brows to be pulling up. And this is an actress that she's got like a big deal. She's going to have longevity and she's obviously not following trends. So I think we should ask more questions versus just following what we all see. There you go. Is there a difference in the adoption of trends between New York and LA that you've seen in your practice? Yes. New Yorkers don't follow trends. <laughs> New Yorkers are like, if everyone's going left, I'm going to go right. <laughs> So the untouched look is a big hit in New York. The untouched look doesn't even need explaining in New York. I'd say we take 10 out of 10 clients we accept as clients. In LA, um, we definitely have a lot of devotees. This is our flagship. You know, you saw this, Nick, it's like a large space and we're very busy. But I'd say we probably take 7 out of 10 clients and kindfully refer on. If 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 you're not going to be able to give them what they're looking for. Yeah, if they don't want to do the untouched look, if they want to follow trends, if they want to look snatched and snatched isn't going to look good on them. Fair enough. So two more just like basic questions, just in case people are curious, how much do they cost and what's the recovery like? 
Average threads for the brows obviously depends on what area you're getting treated in. Um, but generally for two to four threads, you're looking between 1200 to 1600 a treatment ish. So what I'm hearing is maybe Instagram isn't the best place to go for information on cosmetic procedures. No, you can maybe, you know, go get ideas, but then you, you are going, it's a medical profession still. And I think that people have really taken that away from it in the U S. And so if you want to be happy with what you spend and see results, then you have to accurately diagnose the problem. I mean, as someone who has gone to their fair share of doctors and clinics for Botox and filler as a beauty editor, and now as a freelance editor, I found what was so unique about the good skin process is that you treat it as if I was coming in with a swollen arm and you would say like, okay, what's causing the swelling in the arm? Okay, it's this. Okay, let's we'll treat it this way versus... Um, me saying, I want Botox in my forehead. You're like, well, actually you don't need Botox in your forehead because we like to leave wrinkles and you actually need Botox, you know, technically in these areas, because this is where we're seeing wrinkling that, that you don't want. Yeah. We treat it like a true medical profession as it is. And if you solve problems, two things happen. You don't change the way people look number one. And number two, you have happier clients because number one, they look more like themselves. And number two, they, the treatments that you're choosing for them are working because for every problem, there is a treatment. It just has to be the right one. It's funny that people would go through the procedure for like a five or nine month effect, but that's, but that's essentially what it is. Yeah. I mean, I think even less on the brows. Hmm. Really? Yeah. No, I think they're, yeah. No, that's just every couple months. So the makeup version of the fox eye is definitely the way to go or just to hold your face back when you're taking an Instagram picture. Yeah, or lean your head. (laughs) Angles, hands, Yeah, I still find that Botox tends to be more effective for a cat eye look than threads alone. Like if you made a choice, Botox would be the more preventative, better investment. And we do do something called cat eye Botox where we actually are able to really lift the edge of the brow with a very strong dilution of Botox. And we feel that that is better because that is a good long-term investment. That's not just a temporary fix. So I didn't know that threads only lasted five months. And I also didn't know that basically they're not recommended for most, you know, people. She also made them sound like they don't hurt as bad as I think we thought they did. Do you believe her? Yeah. No. I think that she has a high pain tolerance, I would imagine. I I mean, I have you you've had filler? Have you had filler? No. I've had uh filler under my eyes for like dark circles and it is really barbaric. I mean, like they're taking a hollow syringe called a cannula. They're going in through your cheek. They're quote unquote laying the filler on the bone. So they're going like under your skin, under your muscle, I think, to actually lay the filler. So you don't see, you know, you don't see like a little squirt of filler. It's so that it just like adds volume under your muscle. So it's not like filling a cannoli under your eye. No, it, it's like filling inside the crust of the cannoli. It's like very 
it's it's really painful. The great thing about good skin, I will say, is that they offer laughing gas as a um it doesn't numb the pain, but it kind of distracts you from the pain, <laughs> which I find helpful when you're doing that kind of thing. But you know what I really kind of decided is my under eyes are just going to be my under eyes. Remember when it used to be like really cool and Parisian to have like hollow under eyes? Yeah. I mean, I think no one likes to look tired. And I think then it, the sort of that like slept in French look kind of has fallen out of fashion. Number one. And number two, as you get older, it's hard, you know, that slept in French look is good if you're in your twenties. And then when you're in your mid thirties, all of a sudden it, you just look like you've rolled out of bed and you're tired. Yeah. Tired being the keyword. But I'm interested in this cat eye Botox. Me too. Solution. It seems like it's less invasive. It lasts a little bit longer and it's not as severe. And Botox, extreme, they really do just say. like squirt in. It's not like they're. Yeah. Like they're going not having to lay the, on the bone. Yeah. Ugh. It's much less intense. I actually think I got threads in Korea. <laughs> Did I ever tell you this? Well, it's funny that you say that because she says Americans are the only ones that like go into med spas and ask for a certain look. But I've heard stories <laughs> from Korea where you literally can go in and like pick a face off of a menu. So I was on a business trip in South Korea in Seoul and I actually emailed my friend Charlotte Cho, who has the website Soko Glam, and it's a Korean, our friend. She took me to my first has, Korean bathhouse, actually. It was like really? the first day we met and we got butt naked together <laughs> in like Queens. That's a, quite an introduction. <laughs> so I emailed her and I was like, I'm going to South Korea. Like, do you have anyone that I should meet? Like, I want to get into the beauty you know, scene there. And she was like, you have to meet my friend. I met her friend and then I was like to her friend, can you please refer me to a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon? Like, I want to see what the menu looks like. And I went to this really fantastic dermatologist office. She was younger than I was. And we didn't necessarily, like there was some information that was lost in translation. But what I understood is that she was going to do something to lift my brow. And then she was going to do some filler. And she was calling the technique she wanted to do small face, which in Korea is one of the biggest trends, or at least it was five years ago when I went there, where they basically try to like slim the bottom of your face. So they give you some Botox in your jaw. They give you some Botox in the lower half of your face to kind of like create a slimmer bottom half of the face, which in America, like masculinity is all about having like a wide jaw in Korea. It's somewhat different, but I think that they also gave me threads because they put me under anesthetic. Did I tell you? I didn't tell you this. You were under general anesthetic? <laughs> so, no, <laughs> it was like Korea. Twilight. <laughs> but I was alone in Korea. And I remember as they were putting the IV in, I was like, if this goes south and my mother gets a phone call <laughs> that I've died doing a cosmetic procedure in South Korea, she's going to be like, I didn't even know my son. Like he, he was living a lie. Um, I didn't tell any of my coworkers that I was going. So also I would have just like not, I would have not come back to the hotel. Um, and I, I wasn't general anesthetic because I wasn't intubated, but I was consciously sedated. It, it, it's amazing. Like you're in a duvet, like a beautiful, luxurious bed. And there's like three nurses who are all attending to you. And they did something to my face where immediately after I looked like Lady Gaga, I had these like crazy like projected cheeks. <laughs> they did something and I looked a little insane for a few days, but then it kind of went back to normal. And I mean, were you happy 
with your decision or? You know, it's funny. It The whole thing cost $1,200 American. And I think it probably in the US would have cost at least double that. So I felt like I got a deal, which to me was like a great I would pay $1,200 American just to get the Twilight done. I mean, the twi- Twilight's amazing. If you ever, I mean, had any kind of uh, like in-office procedure, it's what you always get. And it's the best feeling I ever. I think I had my wisdom teeth out on on that. They don't do into, I guess they can't do intubation because they have to work on your mouth. Yeah, they have to get in there. Well, I think this has been educational for me. Lisa Goodman at Goodskin is a wonderful practitioner because she treats it like a science and like an art rather than a menu of of faces you can look like. It's all about looking the same when you leave, but just a better version of you, which I think we could all stand to embrace. You know, they're good when they turn you away. You always want to be a member of a club that, would, that wouldn't have you as a member. Yeah. So I guess we're never going to get into the snatched Fox Eye Club. It sounds like the snatched look is not for us or for many people. Lisa Goodman's clinic, again, is called Good Skin Clinics, and they're in New York and L.A., and you may or may not get in. So this is the portion of the show where we get to talk about products, which we do normally when we're just talking on the phone, but now we get to do it for our listeners. And we're going to be talking not just about beauty products, but also about wellness things. We can talk about food that we like. We can talk about whatever the hell we want because it's our podcast. And you can always turn it off. Let's go. Okay. Can I go first? Of course. Okay. My product of the week is something I'm holding the bag right now. So you might hear a little crinkling in the background. It's called Smart Sweets. It's a brand of fake candy that's sweetened with like, I don't even know, tapioca starch and vegetable juice and coconut oil and fiber. They, they are knockoffs of Swedish fish, Sour Patch Kids, and Starbursts, but they have three grams of sugar per bag. And I've been trying to um, kick sugar for quarantine because the first month of quarantine, all I did was bake and then eat chocolate chip cookies. And it hasn't been like, great. Like actually you, you literally baked the cookies. I literally baked cookies and then ate them um, day after day after day. So I'm trying to wean myself off sugar and these smart sweets have been one of the best ways to do it. They also have a shitload of fiber, which who's complaining about that. Um, and they are naturally flavored. They don't have any artificial colors. And what I love about them is they are not sweetened with sugar alcohol. So they're not like full of crap. They're actually full of things that are not bad for you. And it's a woman owned company and you can buy it at Whole Foods. And I'm obsessed with the sweet chews, which are sort of like now and laters and Starburst had a baby. And I also love the Sour Patch Kid version, which I put in the freezer, pro tip, and they are delicious. And they give you like that sugar moment without the sugar guilt and the crash. I co-signed this because you told me about these and I did try the Sour Patch version. Um, I actually enjoyed the texture more than than, than a Sour Patch? I did, yeah. I found them like slightly um, chewier. They're really good, right? Yeah, but my problem was I had two bags. So is that still smart? 
I mean, it's sort of like, remember when we were young, there were those um, healthy choice devil's food cake cookies. <laughs> and like, they were supposed to be like low fat, but they obviously just had a shitload of sugar to compensate for the fat. And you would eat like an entire sleeve of them and think that you were like being healthy, but you weren't. That's kind of, I mean, I would stick to one bag at a time, um, but you can buy them on Amazon too, even though we don't want to support Amazon. Um, but if you were to support Amazon, you can get them there. They come in big boxes, so you can eat two and you'll still have some left. I love that. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you, Smart Sweets. This is not an ad. The, I just love them. Yeah, no, we're not getting paid for anything right now. If you're interested, <laughs> find us on Instagram. Okay, so um, my product this week is something called Felicia Leatherwood's Brush. I found it on Instagram last week. And Nick, I have very long hair, as you know. It is slightly wavy, depending on the water type of wherever I am. And it tangles very easily because there's a lot of it, but it's like very fine. I've been trying different tangle brushes over the years of having them sent to me at the end of the gloss offices or picking them up at Ricky's. And I've tried them all. This one I was really interested to try because it's big and flat. There's a lot of surface area, which you don't normally find, I think, on a detangling brush. And it's interesting because it's actually like a bunch of vertical rows of the bristles, which are kind of a hard plastic, but they they have give to them once you brush them through your hair. And it is soft enough to where it's not pulling your hair out, but it is sturdy enough for hair like mine that's like very long. And, um, you know, sometimes using a one of the other detangling brushes, it kind of, it can take a while to comb through. How much does this cost? I think it was like 20 bucks. And it's, is it better than a tangle teaser? I would say so for my hair. Yeah, I have a lot of hair and I can take it. If you have finer hair, then I would say stick to the tangle teaser. Um, it's actually, um, it's a black owned brand. That's why I found it last week because, you know, I think we were all introduced to like a lot of black owned beauty brands that we did not know about before. Um, so I picked one of these up. It, oh, it's only, I got the black one. It's $14. And they have little travel size ones that are $12 that are pretty cute. But yeah, that's my that's my thing this week. Do you do it out of, right out of the shower or how does it work? Yeah, the only time I brush my hair is – okay, so that's not true. I go into the shower. I use the Mason Pearson popular brush, which is a mixture of plastic and boar bristle. And then I – shampoo my hair in the shower and then when it's wet out of the shower I use a detangling brush and that's my that's my method that works for me I love that for you thank you thank you Felicia Leatherwood and where can you buy it her website which is brushwiththebest.com that is a good url that is a great url I got my puppies my poodles from a website from a woman um, in Santa Barbara, but her website is wegotpuppies.com, which I always thought was a really good website if you were selling puppies. Really? That didn't make you think it was? It It kind of sounds like it's it's a bit of a fact, like a puppy factory, but it is. No, it just sounds like a scam. <laughs> like, well, send us your down payment and then we'll let you drive up to Santa Barbara. She's actually amazing and she keeps them all in this big ranch and, and it's like, it's all up and up, um, on the up and up, but... Um, I just thought she had a good URL. Nick, didn't one of your dogs only come with one testicle, though? 
Yes. But you take them out anyway, so I feel like we're we're at zero. Anyway. Oh, so she, did she charge you more for that then? Great question because it was only – no, they, it was actually a more expensive procedure because <laughs> – sorry, I'm eating a smart chew now. They're addictive. They're not as sticky as a now and later, but they're fucking amazing. Anyway, um, we got puppies.com. What's your brush? What's your brush website? Brushwiththebest.com. Brushwiththebest.com. Okay, so that is it for our first ever episode of Eyewitness Beauty. I'm Nick Axelrod Welk, which is my new married name. And I'm Annie Kriegbaum. Which is Please. your maiden name. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my name. Just your name. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Eyewitness Beauty or write to us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abronowitz, and our theme music is by Danny Prezant. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode, so we will talk with you then. Keep smiling, America. And wear your retainers. 